up Driving when the sun goes down The hum of 18 wheels Lord, that's a lonely sound I spend all day Chasing that old white line I've been on the road so long I've lost track of time Hey friends, this is Gary Rayburn of Lonesome Road Ministries and we've got an awesome program for you. I know you're going to enjoy it today and you're going to want to get more copies of this. So give us a call, 618-383-2107 or log on to lonesomeroad.org or you can email me at gary.lonesomeroad at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Now sit back, listen, and enjoy today's program from Lonesome Road Ministries, Church on the Road. Give us a call. We look forward to hearing from you. I keep those wheels turning from town to town. There's so much I gotta see. I gotta look around. I got diesel smoke rolling. From two chrome stacks, my address is 408-414, a big blue Mac. Now it don't matter where I'm going, I just gotta drive. I have the white line fever to the day that I die. I said 18 wheels rolling on the road, it is my life. Drivers, this is Chaplain Gary Rayburn of Lonesome Road Ministries, along with my partner, Daryl Spicer with Channel 21 Ministries. We are in the cab radio chaplains, and we bring this program to you every Sunday morning at 8 a.m., so make sure you tune in every week. At Central Time. Daryl, we got a really serious program today for the listeners out there. This is a story that nobody wants to hear. And it's the story of uh, Daryl Scott about his daughter, Rachel, who was uh, one of the victims at uh, Columbine High School. The name of this CD that we have here is Rose of Columbine. And it is one of the most requested CDs that we have here at Lonesome Road Ministries. And it's a timely CD. Yes. People are scared. They are scared. And you know, we don't have to live that way. We have an almighty God, and Daryl Scott really brings it home to us today about what God can do in our lives, even in the face of tragedy. So, driver, we'd like to get up in the cab with you today, turn everything else off, put this CD in, and let's listen to Daryl Scott in his heart about what happened that day in Columbine. And, drivers, after you listen to this, if you want to get a hold of Daryl Scott, then 
you need to give me a call at 618-383-2107 and I will put you in contact with Daryl Scott. Here is that message, Rose of Columbine. How many of you remember what you were doing on April the 20th, 1999, when you heard the news of Columbine? I was in a shopping mall, and I got a phone call that there had been shots fired at Columbine High School. And I jumped in my truck and ran a, began to drive across town because I knew I had a daughter, Rachel, and I had a son named Craig. And my brother had two children, Sarah and Jeff Scott, that were at that school. And as I drove closer to the elementary school where they were directing parents to go to wait for their young people, for their children to come by the bus loads, the Lord began to speak something to my heart. My heart was pounding. I was, I was frightened. But the Lord began to speak something to my heart over and over again. I heard these words. This is a spiritual event. A spiritual event. A spiritual event. It was like a commercial that gets caught in your mind and you can't get rid of it. Looking back, 15 months later, after my daughter's death, I've come to realize how fully and how, how real those words were from God that Columbine's tragedy was a spiritual event. 2,000 years ago, a teacher and 12 students had a powerful impact on this entire world. And 2,000 years later, at the end of a millennium, another teacher and 12 students had an impact on the world once again. My daughter happened to be one of those 12 students. For the next few minutes, I want to share with you some things that Rachel Joy Scott left for you and I to read, especially for our family, but secondly, for the rest of the world, and especially for young people, as she left challenge after challenge, and she left prophetic writings about her own life, her own death, and the Columbine impact on the world today. I want to just ask you to gather in, I know some of you are still settling in, but over the next few minutes, I'd like for our spirits and our hearts just to settle down quietly, and let's let God speak to us tonight for the next few minutes. Father, I'm just asking for that anointing that I've come to trust from you, that anointing that rested on the most horrible school tragedy that's ever occurred in the United States of America, the tragedy that took my daughter and that took so many other precious young lives and the life of that precious teacher. And I'm asking you, God, to speak through my words and speak from beyond the grave, from Cassie Bernal and from John Tomlin and from Lauren Townsend and from Isaiah Scholes and from Rachel Scott tonight to the hearts of these young people that have gathered here today. When I got to the elementary school, the first person I saw there was my brother who had been waiting for his children to show up. And within a, a matter of a few minutes, we had heard from my son Craig. He was okay physically, but he was not okay emotionally. Craig was in the library that day where eight of his friends were shot and killed. He saw two of his closest friends killed right beside him under a desk, under a, a desk in the library. His sister Rachel was killed outside the school just a few yards away from him. But I didn't know that at the time. When I got to the school, I knew that we had heard from Craig, we had heard from Sarah, my brother's daughter, and from Jeff, my brother's son. But we hadn't had any word from Rachel yet. And as the hours passed, and as families greeted their children that came in by the busload, we waited patiently, hoping to catch a glimpse of Rachel on a bus that came in. And eventually it turned to be at 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and they told us that there was one busload left coming from Columbine, and that was it. I can't begin to tell you the feelings that parents had in that small elementary meeting room as we waited for that final bus to pull up. And we looked in the windows of the bus, hoping to see our children. 
And after the last young person had stepped off that bus, there were 13 families there who weren't going to see their loved ones that night. We didn't get official news, the official confirmation of Rachel's death until 11 o'clock the next day. But by midnight that night, we knew that we weren't going to see her alive again. Rachel had with her in her backpack two of her final diaries, and I carry one of them with me all the time. This particular diary has a bullet hole that goes halfway through the diary, and the bullet entered at the place where she had written these words, God, I won't be labeled as average. On the front of this diary, she had written these words, I write not for the sake of glory, not for the sake of fame, not for the sake of success, but for the sake of my own soul, Rachel Joy Scott. Rachel never dreamed when she wrote the words she wrote about her temptations and her struggles and her trials, her doubts, her fears, and her faith. When she poured her heart out to God in these diaries, page after page was addressed to Him. As she started off many of her pages with the words, Dear Heavenly Father or Dear God. She didn't realize when she wrote in this diary and six others, and numerous journals and drawings and poems that she left behind, she didn't realize that the President of the United States would hold one of her diaries in his hand. Rachel had no idea when she wrote the things she wrote that they were going to be printed and put in a book form, a book called Rachel's Tears that's available in bookstores around the world, and that young people would be touched and lives would be changed. She didn't realize that at her funeral, the largest viewing audience in CNN history would watch as her funeral was performed uninterrupted for three hours and the gospel would be preached to the whole world. Don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor when he can take Ted Turner's organization, CNN, and let the gospel be preached for three hours uninterrupted. One of the things that Rachel wrote that shocked me in her diaries, that shocked our whole family, was very uncharacteristic of her writings. Most of her writing was vibrant and full of life. Rachel was a beautiful young girl. She was 17 years old when she was killed, and she had starred in her high school play, uh, which was the first time in Columbine's history that a junior had starred in the high school play. She was writing next year's high school play, and from the time she was 12 years old, Rachel wanted to be two things. She wanted to be an actress, and she wanted to be a missionary. Now you go figure that one out, because I never could. The ironic thing is that in her death, Rachel became both an actress and a missionary. She's been seen on television worldwide. She's, she will be seen in upcoming movies. She's seen in books. But more importantly than being an actress was her prayer to be a missionary. And God has used her over and over and over again to touch the lives of people around this world. But Rachel wrote something that shocked us in her diaries. I want to read these words to you. She wrote, I'm dying. Quickly my soul leaves. Slowly my body withers. It isn't suicide. I consider it homicide. The world that you have created has led to my death. And when I got a phone call about a month after my daughter's death to go and speak before a Judiciary Committee at Congress, I had written a poem about four days before I got that phone call. I woke up one morning and just started writing a poem. Now, I don't normally get up, eat breakfast, and write poetry, but I did that particular morning. And this poem just flowed off the paper, and it said, Your laws ignore our deepest needs. Your words are empty air. You've stripped away our heritage. You've outlawed simple prayer. Now gunshots fill our classrooms and precious children die. You look for answers everywhere and ask the question why. You regulate restrictive laws through legislative creed. And yet you fail to understand that God is what we need. And after I wrote that, 
I read the words, and, and I thought, this is for politicians, and I don't know any politicians. But you know what? The Lord knows a couple of them. And four days later, I got a phone call to come to Washington, D.C. And, and speak before our nation's leaders. And so I placed a little speech around that poem, and I went and spoke to them about the fact that we were slap, slapping band-aids on deep, gaping wounds when we only dealt with issues like gun control and didn't see that there were influences in the heart of Eric and Dylan that caused them to do what they did. We found out later that Rachel had witnessed to Eric and Dylan three days, or three weeks, I'm sorry, before they killed her. Two of her classmates overheard that conversation. And when Rachel wrote and said, the world that you have created has led to my death, I prayed and God answered that prayer and began to show me some things that had caused what took place at Columbine. One of those things is the fact that my generation and the generation before me removed from our schools God's presence in the form of Bible reading, in the form of prayer, in the form of the Ten Commandments, and in the form of all the spiritual influence that was there for 170 years before we removed it from our schools. I want to just give you a quick lesson that will give you the equipment to combat anybody that ever tells you that your Constitution teaches a separation of church and state. Because the United States Constitution does not say that and never has. And yet there's groups in this country that would brainwash us into believing that the Constitution actually says there should be a separation of church and state. Those words were never used until 1947 by anybody in our government concerning religion, churches, schools, and government. In fact, the next time somebody says something to you about a separation of church and state, ask them where they got that from. They're going to refer you to the First Amendment. And the First Amendment says nothing about separation of church and state. What it says is that the government shall not establish any particular religion or prohibit the freedom of worship. And when they ask you that question, ask them a simple question. Ask them who wrote the First Amendment. How many of you here know who wrote the First Amendment? The man who was responsible for the writing of the First Amendment was a man by the name of Fisher Ames. Remember that name. He was the one who penned the words of the First Amendment. Fisher Ames spoke before Congress shortly after he had written that amendment, and he said, I have a great concern in our country that too many textbooks are coming into our schools, and they're going to replace the Bible if we're not careful. And he said, I'm concerned that the Bible remains the primary source of our young people's education because it's the, the very foundation for morality. And if we ever remove the Bible, we will see crime and violence take place in our schools. How prophetic was his utterance, and how he would be angry if he knew how people had taken the very amendment that he wrote and twisted it around and perverted it. But when Rachel said, the world that you have created has led to my death, there was meaning behind that. When Rachel was 12 years old, she wrote this poem. Father, reach out your hand, grab hold of my life. Open my eyes to your wonderful light. Fill me up with your undying love and save me a place in your kingdom above. God has done that. He has saved her a place in his kingdom. But after she wrote these words, she said, I wrote this poem, and when I wrote it, it was intended to motivate Christians to go preach the gospel to the world. But by the time I got to the second verse, I realized that I should be talking to myself instead of everyone else. I should be taking my own advice and as Christians, we need to remember to walk our talk. Those three words, walk our talk, became the theme of Rachel Joy Scott's life over the next five years. From age 12 to age 17, her theme became to walk my talk. She didn't go to school with a Bible in her hand, and she didn't quote very many verses at people. 
And as far as I know, she never wore a t-shirt with a scripture verse on it. But through her walk, through her life, through making friends and reaching out to people that were different from her, she created a witness at Columbine High School. In a few moments, I want to share some things that Rachel did that you can do in your schools, in your universities, in your high schools, at your workplace, and in your home. On March the 1st, 1998, Rachel wrote these words. Dear God, I want to feel you in my heart, mind, soul, and life. I want heads to turn in the halls at school when I walk by. I want them to stare at me, watching and wanting the light that you've put in me. I want you to overflow my cup with your spirit. I want so much from you. I want you to use me to reach the unreached. Rachel prayed a prayer in her diary, and she said, God, I want you to use me to reach the unreached. How many of you have ever, ever prayed a prayer to God and He answered that prayer but not the way you thought He should? Me and 32 other people here. Let me ask it this way. How many of you have ever asked God for patience? Why are you laughing? Because when you ask for patience, you know what you're going to get. You might as well ask God this way. You might as well say, God, don't let my car start this week. Let me miss that important date. Let my parents be meaner than ever. Let my brothers and sisters be bratty. And let Murphy's Law kick into gear and everything go wrong. Because that's what you're going to get when you pray for patience. Many times we don't receive the answers that God gives us because they don't look like what we prayed for. Sometimes we pray and God answers our prayer, but the answer doesn't look like what we thought we were asking for. Listen to me, young people. If you want to learn a secret that will transform your life, learn how to be a see-thrower and not a look-atter. Because when you look at your circumstances, when you look at the things going on in your life, when you look at the surface, you're going to see nothing but illusions. But if you'll learn to see through that with a single eye of faith, God will reveal His hand behind the scenes in the most horrible situations that could ever happen to you. Because April the 20th, 1999 was the most horrible thing that ever happened to me in my life. And I immediately began to pray, God, help me see through this and not just look at it. Jesus said something in Matthew chapter 7. He repeated Himself three times. He said, ask and you shall receive. Some of you have never received because you've never asked. He then repeated it and He said, everyone that asks will receive. And then He repeated it a third time. But the third time He said it in a very strange way. He said, if we ask the Father for bread, He's not going to give us a stone. If we ask Him for fish, He's not going to give us a snake or a serpent. Why would Jesus say, if we ask the Father for bread, He won't give us a stone? I'll tell you why. Because we live in a world of illusion. And sometimes, when we ask the Father for bread, He puts on our plate what looks like a stone, but He's asking us in faith to bite into that thing that looks like a stone, He will turn it into bread. Sometimes we ask Him for fish and He hands us what looks like a serpent. But we have to see through that illusion to the fish that it really is or to the bread that it really is. That's why Jesus said, if we ask Him for bread, He's not going to give us a stone. Rachel said, God, I want You to use me to reach the unreached. I want you to know God has answered her prayer many, many times over. But not the way I would have wanted it answered. She goes on to say these words, I have such a desire and passion to serve. But I want to do that now. I want to know and serve you now. I want heads to turn now. I want faith like a child now. I want to fill you in my heart, mind, and soul now. I want you in my life now. I'm crying out to you, Father, asking for your spirit now. Seven times Rachel said, now. God, I want you to use me, and I want it to happen now. Looking back on this writing, she wrote this a year and a month before she was killed. 
Looking back on this writing, I understand the sense of urgency that Rachel had because right about this time, she told five of her closest friends, including her sister Dana, her cousin Jeff, she said, God wants to use me to reach a lot of young people. I don't know how He's going to do it, but He's going to have to do it quickly because I don't believe I'm going to live to be old enough to get married. We didn't know that till after her death. And we began to piece together these conversations with five people. We found a letter in her bedroom several days after she had died addressed to a friend by the name of Brittany. And she said, Brittany, I want you to keep your eyes peeled because God's going to use me to reach a lot of young people. I don't know how. But she said, keep your eyes peeled because it's going to happen soon. On April the 20th, 1998, it's one year to the day before Rachel was killed, she wrote these words, it's like I have a heavy heart and a burden on my back and I don't know what it is. There is something in me that makes me want to cry and I don't even know what it is. Things have changed. Last week was hard. I lost friends at school now that I've begun to walk my talk. Let me just stop there and tell you what she meant by walking her talk and why she lost friends because of that. You know, sometimes when we act too religious, we bring persecution upon ourselves because we're just being stupid. God isn't after us to be religion. He's religious. He's after us to be spiritual. And there's a difference between being religious and being spiritual. He wants us to be a living testimony unto Him. And Rachel, what she meant by walking her talk was to first build a bridge of friendship to a person and then to lead them to the Lord after that friendship was established, after that trust was established. And she had written down a goal for her school. And she said, I will reach out to those that are handicapped. I will reach out to those that are new at school. And I will reach out to those who are picked on by others. Those were her mission field. And when Rachel went to school every single day, between classes and during lunch, before and after school, she reached out to those that were handicapped, those that were picked on by others, those that were new at her school. A few weeks after her death, I got an email from a young girl by the name she lives in Georgia by the name of Amber Jackson. Amber said, I came to Columbine because my dad had lost his job. My mother had died in a car wreck and my dad had grieved so badly that he lost his job and we moved to Littleton for one month. She said, my mother had only been, been dead for about a month when I moved to Littleton. Went to Columbine the first day. She said, I went into the cafeteria and I was scared. I didn't know anybody. I felt sorry for myself. I sat over in the corner of the cafeteria. It was the worst day of school in my life. She said, suddenly there was a beautiful young girl with a smile on her face tapping me on the shoulder. She said, hi, my name is Rachel Scott. You look new at school today. Is this your first day? Amber said, yes, it is. Rachel said, do you mind if I sit with you? Amber said, I'd be delighted. She said, Rachel put her fingers in her mouth and whistled. I could see my daughter doing that. And four of her friends came over. The five of them sat with Amber the first day at, her first day at school. She said, my worst day at school became my best day at school. She said, over the next month, several times, I sat with Rachel and her friends. And she said, every day when Rachel came into the cafeteria, the first thing she did was to look around for anyone new at her school. Young people have come up to me by the hundreds and by the thousands over the last year and said, what can we do? What can we do? How can we be obedient to God? Let me tell you something. God puts people in your path every single day. He gives you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to make a difference. Just start reaching out to those that are hurting. In Isaiah, there's a, a scripture in Isaiah 50 that was one of Rachel's favorite verses. She used it to write down her goals. It was this, The Lord God has given me the tongue of a disciple that I should know how to speak a word in season 
to someone that's weary. All you have to do is look for the weary people around you and God will give you a word to speak to those people. And that's what Rachel did. A young man by the name of Adam that went to Columbine was born handicapped. He had a disease that made him look much older than his age. His skin was slightly wrinkled. He looked a lot older than a high school student. He was very frail in size. Adam gave me permission to tell his story. So did his parents. But Adam was picked on a lot. He was slapped up against lockers. He was called alien and other names at school. His mother came up to me about a month after Rachel's death. We were at a meeting where many of the parents had gotten together that had students that were wounded or killed. Her son was wounded slightly in the cafeteria that day. She came up to me and she said, Mr. Scott, my son Adam never had a class with Rachel. But every single day in the hallways, Rachel reached out to Adam. She would find him in the hall and she always had a kind word to say. She said, my son sometimes comes home now and weeps because there's no one to give him a kind word. Rachel was the highlight of his day. A few weeks later at a, at a baseball game, a softball game, the Denver Broncos and the Denver Nuggets and the Avalanche, the Colorado Rockies got together for a softball benefit game and there were 23,000 people there. They invited the Columbine's victims' families to have special seating. And my son Craig was asked to throw out the opening pitch. So I was down on the field videotaping him throwing the ball with Larry Walker, Terrell Davis, a lot of these guys. And I went back and sat in the stands and I happened to sit down behind Adam. About the fifth inning of the game, he turned to me. And in his slow way, he, could not, he can't speak in a normal way, he speaks very slowly. He said, Mr. Scott, an hour and a half before Rachel died, she found me in the hall. She said, Adam, next week just you and I are going to have lunch together, nobody else. I want to hear all about your family. He said, she said, I just want to be your friend. Tears rolled down his face. He said, Mr. Scott, that's never going to happen. Nobody's ever going to treat me like Rachel did. And something welled up in my heart when that young man said that. And I began to weep with him. And I said, Adam, I vow to you that as I travel across this nation and speak to young people, I'm going to challenge them to start a chain reaction to join Adam's army and to make a difference in their schools by reaching out to people that need to be reached out to. I have received thousands of emails from students around the nation. I received emails from police officers, from SWAT team captains, saying we want to be a part of that chain reaction. As a result of this, we have a number of our politicians, a number of entertainers, a number of people around the nation that are getting on the bandwagon with us to start an anti-violence program called Chain Reaction. I'm meeting with the National Press Club next month. We'll be announcing a program that's going to start growing around the nation called Chain Reaction in honor of my daughter's life because Rachel wanted to start a chain reaction. And here when she said, I've, they make fun of me now that I've begun to walk my talk, she was actually made fun of for reaching out to those that it wasn't cool to reach out to. But she said, you know what? It doesn't matter to me. It's all worth it. I am not going to apologize for speaking the name of Jesus. I am not going to justify my faith. And I'm not going to hide the light that God has put in me. If I have to sacrifice everything, I will. I will take it. If my friends have to become my enemies for me to be with my best friend Jesus, then that's fine with me. She said these words one year to the day before she died. They were prophetic because she witnessed to these boys, she tried to be a friend to them, and those friends became an enemy. And she's with her best friend Jesus. She said, that's okay. I am sacrifice everything. On May the 2nd, 1998, 11 months before she died, these were the only words in her diary. This will be my last year, Lord. I have gotten what I can. Thank you. 
Shortly after that, she wrote, Dear Heavenly Father, You are too good, God. Thank You for the people in my life. Please keep watch over them. I am so happy now that I've begun to walk my talk. I want you to know you're never going to be happy until you're walking your talk. You're never going to be fulfilled. God has ruined you. Those of you who've been born again are never going to be fulfilled until you're walking in the fullness of everything that God wants you to walk in. Walking in obedience to His Word. Walking in fellowship with Him. That's what God wants for your life, and He will bring the fulfillment when you're willing to do that. And Rachel said, I am so happy now that I begin to walk my talk. Remember when I asked for heads to turn in the halls when I passed by? She reminds God as though He forgot that she had asked that. She said, I think a few people take a second look. Thank you for the light that you put in me. That light has had conviction on my friends. I don't have to say anything. They just see you in me. The last poem that Rachel wrote before she died had a prophetic element about her school and her relationship with God. Listen to these words. Am I the only one who sees? Am I the only one who craves your glory? Am I the only one who longs to be forever in your loving arms? All I want is for someone to walk with me through these halls of a tragedy. Please give me a loving friend who will carry your name until the end. Someone who longs to be with you. Someone who will stay forever true. Rachel named a number of people in her diaries that she prayed for. Every one of the people she prayed for came to know the Lord after her death. Rachel prayed many prayers in her diaries. God, I want you to use me to reach the unreached. God has answered those prayers. And here was a final prayer that she prayed. And she said, God, who are you going to give to walk with me through these halls of a tragedy? I don't know all the details of what happened every minute of my daughter's last four or five days. But I do remember the two hours that she and I spent together four days before she died. For two hours, we poured our hearts out to each other. We cried. We wept. I have five children. And I have never had the kind of conversation with any of my other children that Rachel and I had four days before she died. Looking back on that, I realized that God was allowing us to say goodbye. I can tell you story after story. Many of you have heard Cassie Bernal's story, which has been such an inspiration worldwide. She was killed ten feet behind my son Craig in the library that day. But I can tell you the story of John Tomlin, a young man who spent his last summer doing missions work in Mexico, helping build homes for the homeless, and preaching the gospel to those that had never heard the gospel. John was in his living room one day reading a book, and his mother walked in. Doreen is her name. Doreen walked in and said, John, if anything ever happens to you, where do you want to be buried? Doreen said, Daryl, when I asked my teenage son where he wanted to be buried, she said, I had goosebumps. I didn't plan to ask him that. It just came out. She said, John looked up from reading a book and said, Mom, I want to be buried in Wisconsin. That's where my best friend lives. He's buried in Wisconsin tonight because of that question. He was killed in the library protecting two of his friends. Not only that question, but several other things allowed the John Tomlin family be prepared for the loss of their son. God knew Columbine was going to happen before it ever took place. He never lost control. God is sovereign. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows the day you were born, the day that you're going to die. And He knew the day Rachel was born, the day that she was going to die. And He knew how it was going to happen, and He could have prevented it. That's what sovereignty is all about. God's plans and purposes are not ours. And yet we have to see through. We have to be see-throughers and not look-atters to understand that. A young girl by the name of Lauren Townsend was to have been the valedictorian at Columbine High School that year. Lauren went into the living room and showed her mother a picture four days before she died 
that she had drawn. She said, Mother, I felt impressed to draw this picture of what it would be like for me to die and go to heaven to be with Jesus. Her parents live a block away from my wife and I, and they came over and talked to us about that little painting that Lauren drew a few days before she died. I could tell you story after story, but very quickly I want to honor these people who walked through the halls of a tragedy with my daughter. Dave Sanders was the brave teacher who was killed at Columbine. He was standing outside the cafeteria. These two boys, Eric and Dylan, pulled up in, a ca- in their cars and they planted two bombs in the cafeteria. If they had had their way, there would have been over 400 deaths because there were over 400 people in the cafeteria when those bombs were supposed to go off at 11.15. At 11.20, they realized that those bombs weren't going to go off, so they jumped out of their cars and grabbed guns. This was in the back of the school on the west side. They ran up some stairs, and Dave Sanders stood there and watched these boys run up the stairs. He didn't see their guns. They hid them under trench coats. But he did see them pull the guns out from under their trench coats and begin to shoot. They shot a young man by the name of Mark Taylor. I understand that there's a mom of one of the wounded students, a precious young girl named Nicole, and her mother is here tonight in this event. We're going to meet after I finish speaking, back in the back. But this young girl was shot several times. She was seen on a stretcher leaving Columbine. There were 27 or 28 students that were wounded that day. There were 15 people that died, 13 victims of these two boys' guns, and then they killed themselves. Dave Sanders saw them pull their guns out and start shooting. They shot Mark Taylor, who was hit eight times. Mark is still alive, but he spun around in time to see them turn the guns on two students in the corner of the school where there was nowhere to escape, up against a wall. One of those students was Richard Castaldo. He was shot eight times. He's paralyzed from the waist down. The other was my daughter, Rachel. They shot her three times. Eric Harris walked over to her and began to taunt her for her belief in God, and so did Dylan. And Dylan left Eric there with Rachel, and he went down those stairs toward where the teacher had been standing. But by this time, Dave Sanders had rushed into the cafeteria, jumped on a table, screamed at the top of his voice to clear out the cafeteria. He had been a coach and a teacher there for 25 years, and he cleared the cafeteria out in a matter of minutes. And by the time Dylan got down to the cafeteria, there was only a handful left running out of that cafeteria. One of those was a young man by the name of Danny Rohrbaugh, who was shot and killed on the sidewalk outside the school. By the time Dylan got in the cafeteria, there was no one left to shoot because Dave Sanders chose to go in at the risk of his own life and clear out the cafeteria. He then went in classroom after classroom and yelled for kids to get out. He said, there's other kids killing, shooting outside the school. And then Dylan joined Eric, who walked over to my daughter and lifted up her head by her hair. And he asked her the question, do you still believe in God? He said it in a very sneering way. And Rachel's words to him were, you know I do. She was mortally wounded already. But at that point he said, then go be with him. And he shot my daughter through the temple execution style. But I want you to know the next words that Cassie heard, and that John Tomlin heard, and that Lauren Townsend heard, and that my daughter heard were, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joys of the Lord. And when he fired the shot, when Eric fired the shot that killed my daughter, Dave Sanders heard that shot, and he rushed not away from the shooting, but toward the shooting. And these two boys went into the school, took a right turn toward the library where my son Craig was at. And Dave Sanders tried to prevent them from going into the library. He turned around to run when he realized that they weren't going to lay their guns down. They shot him in the back, and he stumbled into a classroom, fell against a desk, knocked out his teeth, lay on the floor for the next two hours, and bled to death 
as he looked at pictures of his wife and two daughters that he asked students to hold in front of him. I'm not here to tell you a gory story, but I'm here to tell you this man was a true American hero. He was a brave man who laid his life down for his students that day, and I honor Dave Sanders. Stephen Kernow was the next victim, 14 years old. Stephen wanted to be a Navy pilot, flying F-16. He was killed in the library. Kelly Fleming was a beautiful young girl who had had a series of operations during her lifetime. She knew what pain was all about. She had just had one of her final operations when she was killed in the library, writing about her own life story. She wanted to be a writer. Daniel Mauser, a young man who ran track and who was in forensics with my daughter Rachel. They were friends. They were on the speech team together, debate team together. He was killed in the library doing his homework. Corey DePooter, a young man that was shot so many times, he couldn't have an open casket. He was cremated. He's buried next to my daughter in Littleton. Kyle Velasquez, a large young man, they called him a gentle giant, doing his homework on a computer in the library. My daughter Rachel, killed outside the school. Danny Rohrbach, killed outside the school. Isaiah Scholes, a black young man that was killed next to my son Craig. Craig got under a desk with two of his close friends. Isaiah was on the football team. Matt Kector was on the football team. Craig was on the wrestling team. These three were very close friends. They got under a desk together. And these boys came in with their guns and pointed them at Isaiah and began to taunt him because he was black. For three to four minutes they taunted him before they killed him. My son Craig for almost a year had nightmares about Columbine's library scene. He saw eight of his friends killed. He helped a young girl who had her shoulder blown off. He picked her up and carried her outside and helped to lead a prayer meeting out by a, a police car. Many of you saw pictures of that from Columbine. But Craig was probably one of the greatest emotional victims. He was the only one in the library that day that lost a sibling. And he was one of the few that saw others killed. But Craig dreamed about the library scene night after night after night. And he told me, Dad, the worst part of my dream is where they're taunting Isaiah simply because he's black. I want to tell you something, and I'm speaking to every adult and every young person in this crowd. If there's any prejudice and bigotry in your hearts toward anyone for any reason, I pray that God removes it tonight. There's not room in our hearts for prejudice and bigotry toward others. God, just take it out. Cassie Bernal, beautiful young girl whose light had shone so brightly at Columbine for two years, was killed ten feet behind my son Craig. Matthew Kector, killed beside Craig. Lauren Townsend was the young girl who had drawn a picture about dying and going to heaven to be with Jesus. She was killed in the library, and so was John Tomlin. John's parents have traveled with me in the past. Cassie's parents will be with me at some events in the future, and some of these other parents will be with us from time to time. But in all of your prayers for us, don't forget to pray for the Klebold and the Harris families. These people need healing, and they need God. And in praying for us, we ask you to pray for them as well. I want to close in the next few minutes by sharing something that Rachel drew shortly before she died. Rachel drew in her diaries a picture several months before she died of a fish symbol, the fish, fish symbol of Christianity. In the center of that fish symbol, she drew a cross, and then she wrote the words, Jesus Christ, around the cross. But she chose a verse of Scripture to put in this picture that said, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. When I first saw this picture, that's what gripped my heart, was the verse that she chose to use about a person laying their life down for their friends. What I didn't pay a lot of attention to was a rose that was growing on the right-hand side of the picture. She drew a picture of a rose 
And there were drops of blood falling from that rose. And the rose was growing up out of another flower, another plant. And the flower that it was growing up out of was a columbine flower. Columbine means like a dove. It's the same description used for the Holy Spirit. When Jesus was baptized, the Spirit ascended, descended on Him like a dove. That's what the word columbine means. Columbine's prayer group of 90 young people had been praying for God to give them a theme in 1999 to pray for. You know the theme that God gave them and what they were praying for? It was God use our school to shake this nation and to reach the world. There were so many things that happened that I don't have time to go into. But this picture especially became important to our family. I didn't pay a lot of attention to that rose that was dripping with blood growing out of a columbine plant until later. A month after Rachel's death, the Lord began dealing with me very strongly about letting go of my job and stepping out and making a difference and doing something. I didn't know how that was going to happen. Little did I realize that when I would go before Congress and give that speech that it would get on the internet and the doors would begin to open all over the world to go and speak. I didn't know any of that at the time. But I knew God was dealing with me about taking a step of faith. I struggled with that for about a week and I sat on the edge of my bed one morning and I just said out loud to God, I said, God, I want to do whatever it is you're calling me to do. I want to do it, but you're going to have to open the doors and I want to wear blue jeans. That was my honest prayer. I didn't want to be a preacher and I didn't want to be a politician. I just wanted to be myself, Rachel's dad. And uh, right as I prayed that prayer, I got a phone call. I picked up the phone, it was ringing, and it was a gentleman by the name of Frank, Frank Amedia, who lived in Ohio at the time. He now lives in Florida. But Frank called and he said, Mr. Scott, you don't know who I am, but he said, I saw your daughter's funeral on CNN a month ago. And he said, you've been laid on my heart to pray for. And he said, I've prayed for you faithfully over the last month. He said, I've never felt free to call you until just now. But he said, I'm calling you to let you know that God spoke to my heart that He's going to raise you up to speak to young people and to leaders across this nation. And that confirmed what God had been speaking in my own heart. But he said, that's not the reason I'm calling. The reason I'm calling you is because I have had a dream over and over and over again over the last month. And I know it's from the Lord. He said, I'm not a mystical person. He said, I own businesses across the United States. And I'm not a mystical person. I don't put a lot of stock in dreams and visions. But I know that this is from God. He said, in my dream, I see your daughter's eyes. And there's a stream of tears flowing from her eyes. And they're watering something. But I can't see what they're watering in the dream. And he said, does that mean anything to your family? And I said, Frank, I'm sorry, but that doesn't mean anything. He said, well, I'm surprised because I thought it would. He said, I know I keep having this dream for a reason. And he described it one more time. Tears flowing from my daughter's eyes, watering something that he couldn't see. He said, would you take my name and phone number and call me if, you, if that ever means anything to you? And I said, I'll be glad to. I wrote his name and phone number down. Three or four days later, I forgot all about it. But seven days after he called me, I got a phone call from the sheriff's department. And they said, we have your daughter's backpack with all the contents in it ready to be released. There was a bullet hole through her backpack and we knew they were holding some of her books two of her final diaries. I rushed over to the sheriff's department and got the books. They were wrapped up in white plastic. Took them out to my truck. Opened up the final page of her last diary. Toward the middle of the diary was her last page. And what I saw looking at me from that page stunned me. For 45 minutes, I sat there. I could hardly breathe. I wept. I didn't think there was any more tears after a month of mourning. But I, I wept again and again and again. I just sat there and sobbed. Because looking at me from that page was something she drew. 
And I was told later that a friend of hers saw her drawing this 30 minutes before she died. Her friend Sarah Arzola said she was drawing this picture like her life depended on it. And it was a picture of her eyes. And there was a stream of tears flowing from her eyes. And they were watering a rose. And it was the same rose that was dripping with blood that she had drawn six months earlier that was growing up out of a columbine plant and connected to a verse that said, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. I sat there stunned as I looked at this picture, looking at a picture that I have in front of me right now that my daughter drew that perfectly fit what a stranger had called me up and said he had been given in a dream over and over and over again. About a month later, I spoke in Jackson, Tennessee to a group of about 5,000 in an open field. And a young girl, after I told this story, a young girl came up to me with her Bible open, crying, and she said, Mr. Scott, the Lord placed these verses on my heart before you ever came to our town. I didn't know that you were going to talk about Rachel's tears. But she said, I knew I was supposed to have you read these verses. Before I read these verses, I want to tell you that there's 13 clear tears that she drew falling from her eyes before they hit the rose and turned into blood drops. Within two hours of her drawing these 13 tears, there were 13 victims that fell dead from the guns of these two boys at Columbine. And the verse of Scripture that I read that this young girl handed me was this, from Jeremiah 31, 15-17. It says, This is what the Lord says, A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. This is what the Lord says, Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. The children will return from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children will return to their own inheritance. And a door of closure slammed shut in my heart when I read those verses, and I realized for the first time clearly that my daughter's life and death had not been in vain. And that God was going to reward the work of her tears. That He was going to reward the work of His own tears that has been shed for the youth of this generation. Because God spoke to my heart when I looked at that picture and said that rose represents the youth of this generation. And out of this tragedy, out of this Columbine tragedy, I'm raising them up and watering them with my tears and calling them to do a work that I've called them to do. When I spoke before Congress, the last words I said where my daughter's death will not be in vain, the young people of this nation will not allow that to happen. I meet with politicians monthly and weekly. I've met with our nation's leaders several times. But I will tell you this, the most important people I meet with are not the president, not the governors, not the senators, not the congressmen, but they're you young people because you hold the key to our future. And you hold the ability to bring the change that's needed in our schools and in our country as a whole. And I believe in you, and I believe that God has an anointing on your lives to bring change and to make a difference. In closing, I want to read something that Rachel wrote, and then I want to read something that my son Craig wrote. We found a piece of paper under Rachel's bed several weeks after she had died. It had floated underneath her bed. It's a piece of paper that says, My Ethics, My Codes of Life. She wrote this March of 1999, one month before she died, as a project in her literature class. It was an essay that she got a perfect score on. And in this essay, she wrote these words, I believe that compassion is one of the greatest forms of love that I have to offer others. My definition of compassion is to forgive, to love, to show mercy to others. I have a theory 
that if one person will go out of their way to show compassion, it will start a chain reaction. Let me just stop there and tell you something Rachel did three weeks before she died. There was a young man by the name of Austin Wiggins. Austin is a DJ in, in Denver. He's 23 years old. And he had had a terrible day. Have you ever had one of those days where everything goes wrong? And you don't want to see anybody happy. That was the kind of day he had. In fact, he told me about meeting my daughter later. He said, everything went wrong that day, and then I got a flat, and it was raining. He said, I'm standing out in the rain, looking at a flat tire. It's dark. I don't have a light or an umbrella. He said, I'm feeling miserable. And your daughter pulled up in her red Acura Legend that many of you saw on television that became one of the monuments there at Columbine. She pulled up in that red Acura Legend and she bounced out with an umbrella and a flashlight and she said, looks like you're having problems, buddy. He said, I just wanted to kick water on her. He said, she had this big smile and bubbly personality and he said, I didn't want to see anybody happy. He said, within three or four minutes she had me laughing with her. She helped me change the tire and he said, I'll never forget what she said. She looked at me right in the eye and she said, Austin, you need to lighten up. And let God take hold of your life. He said, I went to a bar later that night with some friends and I told them jokingly, I think God sent an angel to help me fix a flat today. Three weeks later, he saw my daughter's picture on the front page of the Denver Post and he said, my heart almost pounded out of my chest when I realized this was the young girl who had stopped and helped me fix a flat. He came to my daughter's funeral. There were 3,000 young people at that funeral. He stood in the back. There was standing room only in the back of the, of the, the church we were in. And at the end of the funeral, without an invitation, he walked down to the casket, knelt down before my daughter's casket, and weeping and sobbing, he gave his heart to the Lord Jesus. And I want you to know Rachel started. Rachel started a chain reaction with Austin Wiggins through an act of kindness. The antidote to violence is not gun control. The antidote to violence is not turning your schools into prisons. The antidote to violence is acts of kindness. Let God use you like He did Rachel. She said, I dare to believe that I can start a chain reaction through acts of kindness. People will never know how far a little kindness can go. She ended this essay by saying, my codes may seem like a fantasy that can never be reached, but test them for yourself. See the kind of effect they have in the lives of people around you. You just may start a chain reaction. March of 1999, Rachel said, you can start a chain reaction. Five months later, I listened to the young man who killed her on a videotape that he made in the basement of his own home, holding the gun that killed my daughter. He looked at the camera and he said these words, we need to start a chain reaction through acts of violence. I was stunned as I heard the same month he recorded those words was the same month that Rachel wrote the challenge for us to start a chain reaction through acts of kindness. Two young people raised in the same city, went to the same high school, attended the same class, born a few days apart, lived a few miles apart, died the same day. In March of 1999, they both challenged your generation to start a chain reaction. I want you to know that Eric Harris's chain reaction has pretty much died out, but Rachel's is just getting started. No smiles can cover the tears 
we cry When Satan and boys took their toys Walk those halls of death Nothing can hide the tears of Columbine High It's time we stop the madness Our kids killing kids It's time we beg Jesus Make us whole again It's time Voice of mercy calling out Stop the madness, time's running out God is saying, put me back in school Take those Gideons off that street Put them back on the schoolyard where they ought to be Maybe it's not to save us all It's time We stop the madness Our kids Killing kids It's time We beg Jesus Make us whole again It's time We did. This time we stopped the madness. Our kids, killing kids. It's time we beg Jesus. Make us whole again. It's time. We did. It's time, oh Lord. We did. Drivers, most of us could not imagine the tragedy that went through this man's life and his wife and his family. And everyone is concerned that was affected by this tragedy. But there is peace that Daryl got from his Lord. And he also got it by the witness of his daughter. So if you're going through stuff, and we all go through stuff, probably none of us is going to go through the tragedy that Daryl Scott went through with his family and with his daughter, the way that happened. But still, we all go through stuff. And the way we get through it, the way I get through it, is I call out to the Lord. And I ask Him for His mercy and for His grace. But to do that, I feel that we need to be right with the Lord. That we need to be serving Him. And we can't pay Him back for anything He's done for us. But if we ask Him into our heart, into our soul, that's, that's what He wants. He wants a relationship with you, driver.
And it's so easy to do is just call out to him and say, Lord, I trust in you. I need you in my life. I have sinned and I ask forgiveness for these sins. And I know that you went to the cross for me. So, Father, I cry out to you today that the things are going through my life that you'll help me with and lead and guide me because your word says I get my strength from you. So, drivers, if you prayed that simple prayer and asked Jesus into your life, give us a call here at Channel 21 Ministries at 615-663-3199 or give Gary Rayburn a call. My phone number is 618-383-2107. We would love to pray with you. We'd love to send you free CDs to help you out there on that old lonesome road. And remember this, friends. Jesus loves you. We love you too, and we'll talk at you later. At the darkest of days, I was lost without hope. Just an old sinner thief at the end of my rope. In my mind was a scripture many times I had scorned While down the road they led Jesus, they claimed virgin born That day I met Jesus hanging there on a tree I heard as he spoke and he beckoned to me I left a lifetime of misery hanging there, don't you see? That day I met Jesus, that day He saved me. There was nothing to do that would alter my past. That's when I knew that this day was my last. They nailed this man Jesus on a cross next to me. There I opened my heart. New life to receive That day I met Jesus Hanging there on a tree I heard as he spoke And he beckoned to me I left a lifetime of misery Hanging there, don't you see That day I met Jesus That day he saved me That day I met Jesus, that day he saved me.